0: This morning we resume our study of the uh, book of Romans, picking up in Romans chapter 12 at the point that we uh, were going to look at um, two weeks ago, um, but it's been three weeks since we've been uh, in this study. And I don't know about you, but I have uh, just continually marveled at uh, the, uh, the, this particular chapter has an incredible expression of the christian faith it begins in in reminding us of the gospel as uh, paul begins the chapter saying in light of god's mercy in other words remember everything that came up particularly what was written in Uh, Romans 1 through 8, as God's mercy was extended to people who didn't deserve it, people like you and to me. But in light of God's mercy, he says that we are to offer our bodies, offer our lives as living sacrifices, and so it's not just a matter of how we feel or what we do, though those things are important, uh, but we are to love God not only with our hearts and with our minds, but with our strength, and in do so uh, by loving the people who are are around us. That's what it means to offer to God uh, a living sacrifice and we're to be renewed, Uh, we're to be transformed, and he says we're transformed uh, from the inside out by the renewing of your mind. Begin thinking what God's thoughts are. See the world and see yourselves as the way God sees that transformation and Christianity is an inside-out work, not an outside-in. It's not a fake it till you make it. It's a grace that is at work and is bearing fruit in our lives. And then he, Paul then tells us also that we who want to be followers of Jesus Christ, we who want to be his disciples, need to explore and to discover uh, the meaning and the significance of, of the body of Christ. And he tells us that every one of us is vitally important. Some may be more visible than others and may seem more important, but everyone is necessary. And he explains part of the necessity by saying to everyone who has been born of Christ, you have been given gifts. You've been given very specific gifts. You've been given gifts that are necessary for the whole body to function. Your gifts, whatever it is that God has given to you, is necessary for everybody else in the body. And all the gifts fit together to create a body that's a reflection of what God is doing in his people. And then now as we turn to the last half of this chapter, Paul tells us with those things as a foundation, he gives us instructions on how we are to live in this world and live with the people who are around us. So we come now to Romans chapter 12. Uh, We'll begin our reading in verse 9. Hear the word of our God. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The word of our God. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this word, we thank you for the depth and the breadth of your instruction. and We thank you ultimately that it is a reflection of your character that was embodied in the person of Christ. And that it is a promise of what we will be. For you who have begun a good work have promised to see it through to the end. And you have said that you will bring every one of us to conformity, to become like Christ. And so I pray now that as we come, we continue to worship you by recognizing this is your word, by giving our ears to listen, by opening our minds to seek to understand, and opening our hearts to receive and to allow this word to change us. But this is the way that you will work. So may your spirit take this word Give us understanding and even more. Let it shape us that we would not merely be informed, but formed by the Word and Spirit. To the glory of your holy name, we pray in Christ Jesus. Amen. In the introduction to his marvelous essay, The Mark of a Christian, Francis Schaeffer writes this. Through the centuries... People have displayed many different symbols intended to show that they are Christians. They have worn marks in their lapel coats, hung chains around their necks, and even had special haircuts. But there is a much better sign, a universal mark, that is to last through all of the ages of the church till Jesus comes back, and that mark is love. The Apostle Paul says in this passage, opening up the verses that we read this morning, let love be genuine. And Paul's whole point here is that if grace is operational in our lives, that eventually it must begin to express itself, and that grace expresses itself through love. Paul says, let love be genuine. Now, many of you are, are probably aware, those of you who have been in any evangelical church for any length of time, know that there are multiple words for love in the Greek language. And the word that Paul here uses is one that is, uh, is familiar for many. The word is agape. Agape is the expression of the love that God has for his people. Uh, agape is a selfless love it is an unconditional love for others it it is never self-seeking it is always oriented toward others agape seeks nothing for self except for the joy of seeing other people flourish and paul is saying let your agape that is the kind of love that we are to begin to express it it is a mark of being a christian schaeffer calls it being the mark of the christian Uh, Paul here tells us that this is the distinguishing mark of anyone who is gripped by God's grace. Let your love, your agape, be genuine. Now, genuine itself is interesting in this particular text as well, because the word genuine, if you were to to look at it in the Greek and put it aside, it literally means uh, don't be hypocritical. Uh, the word in in the greek is, is is on hypocritos," which look again hypocritical don't be hypocritical now the original hearers of this letter the ones who read it first and heard it read out loud in their church fellowships uh, they would have had a a, a a somewhat different idea coming into their minds when they hear the idea of not being hypocritical not entirely different but it is sufficiently different that it would be helpful for us to understand what they would hear because when we hear don't be a hypocrite, we think of a hypocrite as somebody who says one thing and then does another thing, right? It's just, that's, that's just hypocritical. It's, it's, it's a pretense, it's, it's not real. And, and while there's part of that that is true, in the ancient times, the original hearers of this, when they heard the word hypocritical, something else came entirely to mind. They thought of the theater. Because a hypocrite was a thespian. A hypocrite was an actor. During the ancient times, the actors would always wear masks. That was part of the way that they would indicate what they were doing in their role. They would wear a mask when they were on stage as part of their performance on role. Uh, And they were hypocrites. They were actors. Once they would step off the stage, the masks would come off, and they would become real again, real people again. And they go about their day-to-day lives. And at that point, they were no longer hypocrites. And, And what Paul is saying to us, when he's saying, let your love be genuine, as it's translated in the ESV is as genuine but don't be a hypocrite is to take off your mask to stop wearing the mask that we are so prone in the evangelical church of wearing you know i don't know what happened as you were preparing to come to church this morning but by the time you got here you were smiling and happy and everything else we are so prone to know exactly how to perform and we show up in church circles or, in, or perhaps when we're trying to preparing to evangelize we you know put on this beatific look and we we perform we put on those masks and Paul was saying, let your love be unhypocritical. Quit performing. Let it be genuine. Now, for those of you who read this passage in the NIV, it's interesting because the word that's translated genuine here, uh, still not hypocritical, but the word genuine, in the NIV is, is um, let your love be sincere. And I wasn't aware until... Studying for this passage, I I, I don't think I'd heard before, but the the etymology of the word sincere. The word sincere originally and literally means without wax. So let your love be without wax. Is that clear? We all got that now? I think, you you, when I read the commentator, it says it means let your love be without wax. I'm thinking, what, what in the world? And so I began to explore and basically it was related to this. In the ancient times, the wealthiest people, they would buy statuary. They would go, go to the marketplace, some place that had you know, statues that had been sculpted, sculptures, and they would bring them home and they would put them in their gardens. And the statues, both the, the quality of the statue and the number of the statues that you had in your garden, around your yard or on your porch, wherever it was that they would put them, was an indication of your wealth. And because that was a common practice among the wealthy, there were merchants who brokered art dealers who brokered in these statues Um, but as statues were moved from artists or place to place and merchant to merchant and uh, sometimes things would get cracked they would get broken and so you might have an ear that's kind of chipped off or a nose that has a piece that is missing and the merchants knew that nobody wants to buy the, the the cracked up and the broken pieces of art and so they would invite an artisan to come in and to fix the statues so that they would be able to be sold and the artisans would often come in, and they would be skilled in working with wax. Wax was about the same color. It was able to look like uh, the, uh, the marble that they were using, and they would fix these statues, these marble statues, uh, but using wax on them, and they would look perfect. And people would come in, they would buy them, they'd take them home, they'd put them in their garden, and everything was great until uh, the sun came out and people's noses looked like they were boxers that had just been beaten up in a fight and their ears were bitten off by Mike Tyson or whatever. I mean, it's... And, and so what Paul is saying here is let your love be without wax. It means that you let your love be the real deal. And in these verses, Paul a, shows us three ways that the real, genuine, no-wax, no-mask no love is to be expressed. First, it begins by saying this. <clears throat> love what is good. That's what we see in verse 9. Actually, in verse 9, we, if we read verse 9 in its whole, we, we see that, but we see something else. Paul says this. Abhor what is evil and hold fast To what is good and I I like the way the New Living Translation phrases it which says hate what is wrong and hold tightly cling to what is good now it it may come to your mind and and to wonder this why why is Paul starting here I mean if the whole idea is to show us how we are to care for people why not focus on telling people to, to focus on what's good in people love what is good in people and then love the people And not only why is he focusing on something so abstract like good and evil, but why is he starting so negative? You know, the whole point is, let your love be genuine, and then it goes right there, abhor what is evil. And then he moves on to, and then cling to what is his good. I think I agree with those who have suggested that the reason that Paul starts here is because he knows that we don't always hate what is wrong. We don't always hate even what is evil we have this propensity to just kind of overlook and sometimes even justify what is wrong what is bad what is evil in those whom we are closest with we see it in parents who make excuses for the lousy attitudes and power behavior of their children we see it in spouses who though being abused somehow justify the abusing spouse. It's not that love should not be forgiving. It it absolutely should. I'm not talking about swallowing the debt and being forgiving of the person and the debt that they owe because of their sin, but we really just overlook it. We don't even recognize or we choose not to see what is wrong and then cling to what is good. And in so doing, we are clinging to this mixture of what is wrong as well as what is uh, what is good and until we learn to love what is good and hate what is wrong and hate what is evil our love may not be in line with truth and therefore it is not genuine it is not real it's not without wax and so paul begins here because he knows his propensity in every one of us is to just have a different standard for the people that are closest to us than we have for uh, anybody else who might be in our relational sphere. And so Paul here then instructs us to cling to what is good. So we, we need to be aware and know the difference between what is, what is uh, wrong and, and to cling to what is good. And the word that he uses here for cling is the same word that's used elsewhere uh, for uh, the, the kind of the dust that clings to your feet. And, and so the imagery he has here is when you know what is good, you are to cling to what is good the same way that the sand clings to your feet when you go to the beach you know, when you're trying to come back in, and you know, you no matter how hard you try to, you know, shake it off, it just doesn't come off. I mean, it takes a, a, a quite a quite a work with a, with a hose to get all that sand off, and even then, somehow, uh, it, it tracks into the house. were would cling to what is good, in uh, the same way that the sand or the dust clings to our feet. But even with that understanding of the verb, it, it doesn't really help us with the other problem that we have, which is that we don't necessarily hate what is wrong or what is evil. There needs to be something that is even more powerful than the sand that is clinging to your feet. And, and we do have that illustration that any of us could probably see as we're driving home. Most of you can probably see in your own yards uh, if you, when you go home today. Because we live in Williamsburg, probably every one of you has a tree, or some, very tall. And if you were to go and look, even despite the storms that we've had recently, on the top of those trees, even though almost all of the leaves have fallen to the ground, somewhere in the top of those trees, you have leaves, leaves that are dead, but they continue to cling, and they will continue to cling throughout the winter no matter how many storms come through. Some of them even cling when, you know, major storms, although hurricane-force winds. For some reason, those dead leaves continue to cling onto the living trees. And, and it's a good representation of us clinging to uh, those things that are not good, because we do cling to things that lead to death. We cling to things that bring deadness into our lives. The only thing that is going to take that deadness is life, and every one of you has experienced it. If you've lived here or anywhere where there's trees before, because it happens every single year, because when the spring comes, the sun comes out, the uh, warmth uh, begins, the things begin to turn green again, and life begins to flourish, those dead leaves will finally be expelled from the tree when the new life of the new leaves begins to blossom. In the same way, Paul is saying to us that we are to cling to what is good. But we are to cling to what is good, which is, again, in light of remembering, being in, in view of the mercies of God, the gospel, which is a, in, in you, and it is at work, and it is bearing fruit in the lives of everyone who believes. And, and as that begins to bear fruit, more and more of that which is dead, more of that which is wrong, it will die. We will die, our affections for it will die. And it will be replaced by clinging a living Leaf that will cling to the trees of our lives. The old Scottish minister from uh, Thomas Chalmers recalls that the expulsive power of a of a new affection, when we see the love of God, when the love of God is at work within us, when we love what God loves, we let go of the things that are not good. And so Paul begins by saying, "Hate what is evil and cling to what is good." And I can't help but be reminded of what the Lord has told us. He has shown you, oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. And Paul says from the very beginning, he begins still at work within us, knowing that we have this tendency, reminding us of our need to constantly be, have the Remember, the, the mercy of God, the, the gospel, that Paul explains so wonderfully and in such great detail in Romans 1 through 8. But with that then said, Paul moves on, and he says, not only are we to love what is good, we are to love one another. Now, the question here is, who is the one another that Paul has in view when he's instructing us we, we see that picking up in, in verse 10 paul says love one another with a brotherly affection outdo one another in showing honor and then he goes on with a, a number of other instructions that are woven throughout the remaining verses so when paul says love one another who who does he who does he mean and the answer is he means other believers he means others who are part of the body of christ the others who are in the church He's not talking about the whole of humanity here. He'll get to that in a moment. But here he is establishing the the nature of the relationship that people within the body of Christ, people within the church are to have with one another. Now, how do we know that this is what Paul is talking about? That he's limiting his focus, uh, in this case, to love one another, to only uh, Christian to Christian, to uh, believer to believer. And the answer is because of the language that he uses in in this text. A a little bit later, he's talking about the relationship that we have with the saints. Well, the saints is a status that is declared to everyone who believes. It's not an achievement. It is to be attained. But when you believe, you become part of God's household. You become part of the household uh, of faith. and, and, And everyone who is in the household of faith is declared a saint. The question is not whether we are saints, but whether we act like saints or not. But Paul also saying here in the language is the word that he chooses in, in even describing the love that we are to have with one another. It's one of the other Greek words that he, it is used here. The word in the text is Philadelphia. Now, any of you who know, thinks of the city of Philadelphia naturally thinks of love, right? Um, you know, being a born Philadelphian, born and born. I mean, you just see the love just exudes from any, any of us that are from there. Uh, and the, yes is the only answer I'll accept here. But anyway, that's... Um, but the word Philadelphia literally means, the first part of it is, 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 is the phylos. It, it, is, it is love. Uh, and then it's modified by you know, the adelphos, which is brother. It's a brotherly love. It's, it's a relationship. Uh, the, the kind of relationship that people have within families. And what Paul is doing here is he's telling us, well, first of all, you know, throughout Scripture, we're told that those who are part of the household of God, uh, everybody, Relates to one another. We are related to one another by faith in Christ, as being brothers and sisters in Christ. And and so, with Paul, with the language that he's using here in this passage, he is telling us that there is a different relationship that we are to have with fellow believers. It's not even that we ought to have. There is a different relationship that we do have with other believers than we do with anybody else that is in the world, even if the other people are related to us biologically. There isn't a relationship that is established by Christ. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And and Paul's point here is that the love that we have for one another uh, who are in the faith is likened to that of a healthy family. We are to love one another with the same love that people in a healthy family have. Now, even in the healthiest families, there's dysfunction in some ways, and the reason for that is because we're all broken. We're all sinful in some way or another. But even with that, and even not saying that we validate what is bad, but we can love even when we recognize that, that somebody has issues in our family. And in a healthy family, that's what happens. It's also the power that helps those with difficulties overcome them at times. And Paul is saying that the love that those who are in Christ ought to have for everyone else in Christ is to be the same kind of love that we are to have for uh, others who would be in our family. And yet, as I was thinking about that this week with Camper's message from last week, um, echoing in my mind, I couldn't help but thinking what an incredibly prophetic message this is to us today as evangelical believers in the United States. I couldn't help but thinking about this, is if I identify more with those who share my political convictions, than those who share my faith and theological convictions, if I identify more with them than I do with those who share my faith and theological convictions but not my political convictions, you know, it it may be indicating that there's an idol that is operative in my life. It, It might not be, it might not be, but whether it is indicative of an idol that is going on in my life, it is telling me this. I am not loving in the way that I am instructed to love. I am not loving in the way that Christ has called me to love. I am not loving in the way that I have been loved. And so if I find that I have far more affection and far more forgiveness and far more tolerance with people who agree with me on political positions than I do with those who agree with me that Christ has come and that he has died and that he has risen again, then there's something wrong with my heart. It's not, a, it's not an activity. It is a position. It's what Christ has established, that those who are in Christ are a family. And Paul is saying, and if that's the case, well, then we are to, to love with this brotherly love. We're to love the way that families are supposed to love because Christ is the one who has made us a family. And Paul strings together a number of different instructions. Although, basically, they all fall into uh, just a, a few different categories. You know, he, he, he tells us that we are to be, uh, give honor to one another, be generous with the honor. In other words, we are to see what is good with others within are in the household of faith and be thankful to God for that. And he also says that we are to be constant in prayer for them, and we pour ourselves out in praying for one another. Now, we hear that all the time, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I, it's not the first time, and it won't be the last time that you hear that here. But I also want to acknowledge that I recognize that it is a difficult thing to do at times. We know we ought to pray. Everyone knows we ought to pray. But almost nobody do I know that feels satisfied with their prayer life. And if anybody tells me they're satisfied with their prayer life, I'm assuming they have no substance anyway, so they don't know what they're talking about. I mean, it's just, just kind of like, yeah, I'm pretty good. I can't see how I'm any better. I mean, I just, there's just something. I might be wrong. That might indicate my judgmental nature. But I've been around long enough, and I know myself well enough, that even what I know, and even with the delight that I get when I have the opportunity to pray, it still sometimes seems like work. And so it's hard at times. And you pay me to pray. I can only imagine how hard it is for those of you who actually work other jobs and are called to be praying for one another. But here's Paul's instruction, is that we are to be praying for one another. Now, just a couple of practical helps. One of some things that might be of benefit for you. Uh, One is if you have a church directory, that's the best place to start. Just go start with the A's and work your way through. Pray for the people, even if you've never met them. Those who you know, you obviously are going to have a more informed prayer. But you can pray for even the people that you do not know. Pray that they would die to their sin and grow in righteousness. That's a pretty safe prayer, but it's one we all need. You can pray that for me constantly. So we're called to be praying for one another some of you are familiar with paul miller may have read his book of praying life others have gone through his praying life seminar which the first that one ever done was done here at grace cup and in that seminar paul shares his own kind of technique he had prayer cards and so he takes little index cards and on them he puts the name of everybody in at one you know one card person in his family person who works with him people who are close to him and he has a, a stack of cards and each one with a name, he, he then puts a couple of prayers uh, for them that he knows what's going on in their life, and then he thinks of some biblical prayers and put Bible verses down so that he can pray that they would grow in grace. And on the back, he marks the date and when he, he's prayed for them, and, and it's, a really, it's a tremendous tool. And for a while, I was, I was doing that as well, but realizing my tendency to lose things, I then started uh, using uh, an app on my phone. It's just called, uh, called Prayer Mate. And so I've adapted the prayer mate app that is available for free on all of your phones, and, and then I've adapted Paul's thing. And so every member of Grace Covenant and every person who is a regular attender, I have your name in my prayer mate app. Well, let me rephrase that. Every one of you who comes to Grace Covenant and you've let us know that you're at Grace Covenant, so there are some of you who've been here for months and, we, you know, you're still incognito. You know, you're wearing masks. Anyway, um, but... Uh, and, and, but uh, And so your names are in there, and I've done the same thing with Paul, the different prayer things, and I have a category for all of the officers, and and I have a category for uh, church members, for the college students, um, and and so every day, or every time I go, sometimes multiple times a day, I press the app, and it pops up a different set of lists, different people to be praying for, and I pray through those things, And, and I need that tool, because I am so forgetful, and I can get so busy. Or I could just focus on a couple of the same people, the people that I love and the people that irritate me the most, you know? And the rest of you who are just, just normal, I might forget you. And so I need that. And I suspect some of you would benefit from it as well. And so we see these categories, these instructions of ways that we are to love one another. But as I, as I was studying for this, I, I particularly benefited from uh the writing of marva dawn who wrote a a marvelous little book called truly the community it's a book of 300 pages and it is of nothing other than romans chapter 12. and and in one of the chapters she helped me to see something that i probably would have overlooked which is the connection of loving one another with the gifts that paul has just expressed in a couple of verses earlier it's just like you kind of move on and, and i don't see that But God's design for spiritual gifts is that we would be able to express love for one another. And what Marva Dawn helped me to see that Paul is showing here is just as there are different gifts that benefit people in different ways, each of us demonstrates love for other people in different ways. Some are good at expressing love in one way, and other people are good at expressing love in other ways. And I began to think about a book that I've been recommending for a number of years to Uh, those I do either premarital counseling with or in marriage counseling, or, uh, you know, here's your Valentine's love uh, gift today. Uh, It's a book called The Five Love Languages by a marriage counselor named Gary Chapman. Since it's Valentine's Day, put that on your list and go buy the book and learn it, read it, but I'll give you a summary here in a moment. But because of the different ways that we are to love, that Paul's talking about the way that we love one another, that book came to mind. And what Chapman does in that book is he recognizes that every one of us has different filters by which we feel loved, and we have different ways by which we feel comfortable expressing love. And they reflect, the feeling of love is when people do certain things for us, we feel the love. And then for us, there's certain things we feel comfortable doing, and we do those and we express love and one of the problems at times in marriage is that people are not aware of those signals and a husband who's usually the the adult uh, in the situation um, is not aware of what his wife recognizes as, as receiving love and then often she's not aware of what he does to try to demonstrate love. And so you often will have couples who are missing one another, though they're both trying to to love, uh, but they're they're missing it. And so what Chapman does is he says, look, there's five categories um, of love, five different ways in which people demonstrate love, in which they feel and, and receive love. And the key is to understand how your partner receives and how they express love. And some time ago, I, it, it dawned on me, this is not only pertinent for marriage, it's pertinent within the body of Christ, it's pertinent in, in the local church. Because certain things get easily misunderstood. There are certain things that we categorize as being loving, and other things get missed as being loving. And, and in, in my case in particular, some of the things that are the most obvious expressions of love are not the things that I'm particularly good at. And, and yet other things that are expressions of, of love uh, also, and, and so I, I need to know that about myself, and, and we need to know that about one another. In and, and the five categories that, Mar, uh, that uh, Gary Chapman, I want to say Gary Marshall, he's the TV producer, wrong guy. Um, Gary Chapman says this. Here, here's the five categories. There are some people who are really good with words of affirmation. They just know the right thing to say, to bring comfort, or to bring encouragement. There are other people who recognize the importance of quality time and they give their spouse, they give their friends, they know that they're a priority by the by the fact that they prioritize time and give it quality and quantity of time. There are those who feel and those who demonstrate love by the receiving in the giving of gifts. And it's not elaborate, but they're just different things. Things that say I was thinking of you. There are some who demonstrate love through their acts of service. They may not know what to say. They may feel that they almost never have the right words, but they are there for you when you have a need, and you don't even question that. You just know that is an expression of love. And then there are those who demonstrate and others who get it through the physical touch. And so through friendships and in the body of Christ, it may be the hug. Maybe the pat on the back. But the touch, the physical presence, these are all different ways in which love is expressed. And so as we are to called to love one another, it's important that we understand we're not all going to do it in the same way. We need to figure out how we do it and then do what you do and do it well, do it often, and do it to all. And Paul says that we are to love one another because when he has created a body, we are one people, we are one family and we are to love. And that's, again, Schaeffer says, this is the mark of the Christian, and it's the way that we love one another that is a testimony to the fact that we belong to Jesus Christ. Schaeffer goes so far as to saying in that essay of uh, the mark of a Christian, which I, I highly commend, that by the way we love one another gives the world reason to believe whether, Jesus Christ has, whether we belong to Jesus Christ, and also gives people to believe whether or not Jesus has come at all. And he bases that on Jesus' own prayer in John 17. It is not an option, and it's not always easy. But Paul is saying, in view of the mercies of God, in view of the love that God has had for you, we are to love others whom God loves. Now, he deals with others that might be even harder at times. Because not only are we to love what is good and we are to love one another, but Paul tells us that we are to love the world around us or to love the people. are around us in the world and we pick that up in verse 14 bless those who persecute you Bless and do not curse them rejoice and rejoice weep with those who weep and he goes on with different kinds of people and there's things that seem to be just independently strung together you know a bunch of different instructions but there is a theme that that holds them all together and that theme is uh, love the people who are around you and they kind of fall into two essential categories here in these verses one that we'll call your neighbor, and the other ones, well, actually, they're all your neighbors, at least by Jesus' definition of neighbor. Jesus was asked, who is your neighbor? And the answer is anybody who comes into your orbit, Um, no matter how long. It might be permanent, like neighbors. It might be the person that you're sitting next to uh, at the red light. Uh, They're your neighbor for that one or two minutes, however long, unless you're in Monticello, then it might be 20 minutes at that light. But anyway, everyone is a neighbor. And so the two categories really would probably be better put this way. There is your normal neighbor, and then there is your problematic neighbor. Uh, the normal neighbor is the one who is just a normal person. You have some things in common, or maybe you don't know them well. Maybe you know them really well. They're your friends. Uh, they, it could include those who are part of the household of faith, but distinctively it is those who, uh, that you relate to, those who you enjoy, those who at least don't bother you, who are not part of the household of faith. And when Paul has those in view, if you read through these verses, the theme that he says that holds these things together, the the primary way that we are to um, relate to them is to live in harmony. That's what Paul tells us in this passage. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. And then he goes on and says in verse 18, as far as it's up to you live at peace with everyone it's a picture of the normal christian life it's not anything that is spectacular it's just live your life in a way that you live at peace and in harmony with the people you are around as far as it's up to you meaning live your life not compromising god's standards but you know love the people who are around you Be faithful to what God is calling you to do. It it seems so ordinary, but it is extraordinary, and it is what God is calling us to do. It's consistent with the scriptures that we see elsewhere. Uh, For the uh, exiles that were from Israel, that were living in, or in Judah, that were uh, living in in Babylon, God speaks through Jeremiah and says, "Here's, here's the plan I have for you. Jeremiah 29, 7. Seek the welfare of the city where I've placed you. Plant gardens, build houses, have kids, get married. Well, get married, then have kids. But, um, you know, join the PTA. It's just be involved. Just get involved. Because he says, because as the city prospers there, you will also find your prosperity. And and so we seek harmony. One of the ways in which we love our neighbors is by being a blessing to them, which is the fulfillment of the covenant that God made with Abram in the first place the everlasting covenant that God's people would be a blessing to the nations. Ultimately, that's Christ. But pragmatically, it's also the way that we live in harmony with them. Paul picks up on the same theme in 1 Corinthians and First Thessalonians. He said, you know, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. And then even in, in, in picking up with the theme from Jeremiah, he goes on in 1 Thessalonians 4, you should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you so that your daily life might win the respect of the outsiders. So for the normal Christian life, dealing and relating to our neighbors, particularly those who we would call the normal neighbors, we're called to live in harmony as much as it's possible for us, just to go about your life, go about their lives, be a blessing to them. And think about it for a moment. In the wake of all of the cultural and political turmoil, don't we all just long for the ability to get along? I mean, isn't that what we really want? For? Isn't that what we, so many of us are praying for? That we just live our lives and, yeah, we'll have disagreements with people. And, and Christians should be able to stand for a, take a principled position and explain that and defend it and sometimes debate it and then be able to just sit down over dinner with the people who they disagree with because that's what it means to live in harmony. It doesn't mean that you don't have disagreements. It means it's the attitude that you take. It's the way that you relate as you're living your life. Christians of all people ought to be able to take those principal positions and still love the ones who are around them. But Paul goes a little bit further when he's talking about loving the people who are around us because, you know, some people are easy to love and other people are a little more difficult. It's an old saying that I remember vividly is, you know, there's some people that bring joy wherever they go, and there's other people who bring joy whenever they go. And Paul kind of talks about those here, which I would call your problematic neighbors is a nice way of putting it because he talks about those who hate you and those who would persecute you because you belong to Jesus Christ, and he gives instruction that we are to love them as well. And when we hear this, I think it's important that we listen and evaluate appropriately, accurately. And I think the first thing that I feel that I need to say, and most of you know this, but it needs to be said nevertheless, that we American Christians need to realize is that we have not been persecuted for our faith. And we are not being persecuted for our faith. We have lost a privileged position in the culture where everybody thought with the similar values that we have. And then they created laws and lived their lives, whether they were Christians or not, with the same standards or similar enough standards. And even where they differed, There was enough respect for those of the faith because our culture was founded on the same values, that there was a respect given to the positions even when people differed. And that is now gone. And it's evident because all you need to do is turn on C-SPAN or pick up a newspaper and see that there are people who hate us and hate our positions if we're faithful to Christ. The question we need to ask ourselves is do they hate us for our faithfulness or do they hate us for our obnoxiousness? And while that number of people who are hating us seems to be growing, we still have not come to the point of persecution. People just have different values than what we have. And so far, we're not forced to fully capitulate there. Now, will persecution come? I don't know, it's possible. But I think that when we American Christians talk about the persecution that we are experiencing and is being threatened, we do two things. One, we sound like a bunch of sniveling whiners. And second, we diminish the true suffering of persecution that our brothers and sisters in Christ are experiencing throughout the world.
1: But nevertheless, we
0: deal with these people who are disagreeable, who don't like us, who hate us, and some who have made it clear they would like to persecute us if they could get the power to do so. How are we to respond? And the answer is very uncomfortable, love them. Seek their blessing, not to be blessed by them, but seek that they be blessed. If they have a need, meet the need. Paul says very clearly, if they're hungry, feed them. It's not limited to those who are nice. But if anybody has need, give them, because it's God who gives us everything. If they're thirsty, give them thirst. If they need something to wear, give them something to wear. We are to love them in practical ways. And Paul says even further on this that we do not overcome evil with evil. We are not even to be overcome by evil, but we overcome evil with good. Much easier said than done. As I look at these verses... I've had a few weeks now to to look at them. There is one sense in which they, they, they can be very encouraging because it does give us a number of instructions and tells us what God is doing and what the Christian life looks like. But I've got to tell you that rather than being encouraged, I've been undone. Because while I see all the things that I'm called to do, I also see all the things that I don't do. And in seeing the things that I don't do, seeing the ways that I fail to love as I am called to love, as I have been loved, I have to resist this temptation the the response to my failure is not to try harder see try harder what is that that's putting on the wax that's putting on the mask in light of my failures the response is not to try harder but to draw nearer to god and to others Remember Paul saying, in, in view of God's mercy, and it, I, I keep harping on that because we so easily overlook that part in view of God's mercy. We never move from there, but we go deeper there. It's only as we are aware of the mercy that God has had, and that mercy, his, his love is at work within us. And John picked this up in his epistle as well. In, in, you know, everybody knows John 3.16, but 1 John 3.16 says this, By this we know love, that he laid his life down for us, and we ought to lay our lives down for our brothers. But then in chapter 4 of 1 John, he says this, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. So in other words, we who are part of the household of faith, we know, and we know because Jesus came, He died, He rose again uh, for us. And we've come, to, we've come to know that, we've come to uh, believe that, um, but we, we know and believe that the love of God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in His love uh, abides in God, and God's abides in Him. Now, listen to what He says in verse seventeen. By this, love is perfected within us. By what? By, by aware, by being aware that God is love, and that He has loved us by coming in the person of Jesus Christ. It's the same thing. What Paul is saying in view of God's mercy. So we could put the two things together because the concepts fit. In view of God's mercy as we continue to view and dwell on and meditate upon God's mercy, the love that we have received in Christ, that's what perfects love in us and enables us to live in ways that we not only find difficult, we don't even want to live in relation to other people. And Paul here says, let your love be genuine. Love what is good. Love one another. Love those who persecute and hate you we see in this passage at the end of the day, the heart of the matter is always the matter of the heart. Father, we thank you for this revelation, painful as it may be, but we thank you for the picture of what can be, what will be, and even what is. We have tasted it in our fellowship, and yet we fail within our own body in relation to one another. We have tasted it, and we long for it in the world, and yet we are in the midst of failing of it. I pray, Lord, you would take this instruction, root us over and over again in the love that you have shown us in Christ and that that love flow through us to one another and to the world around us, that regardless of the environment, it would be known that we, your people, Christians as a whole, and both grace covenant people in particular, love because we have been loved. Help us to experience that love we may express that love to the glory of your name for the good of our neighbors and our own joy. We pray in Christ. Amen.